Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, New International Version. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12-17 through 17, New International Version Hello! Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth. Brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. Here in the studio today, we're going to hear the story of someone whose life was changed by the Bible. Actually changed by one particular story within the Bible. As longtime Anchored by Truth listeners know, we believe that there are four lines of evidence that demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. First, the Bible is historically reliable. Second, the Bible displays a remarkable unity for a book that was composed by over three dozen human authors who wrote over a span of 1,500 years. Third, the Bible gives evidence of supernatural origin, especially through a large body of fulfilled prophecy. And the fourth line of evidence is that the Bible has resulted in an untold number of lives that have been positively changed by its transcendent message. So today, we're going to hear the story of one of those lives. We're going to be joined on the phone by a very special guest, Armando Mondi Flores, a very successful businessman and entrepreneur from Tampa, Florida. Today, Mondi is a committed and mature Christian, but it wasn't always that way. Mondi was living a very successful life, At least he thought he was successful, until he took a fresh look at one of the best-known stories in the Bible. How successful was Mondi? Well, he had been one of the youngest branch managers in the gigantic Xerox Corporation before becoming a senior executive in a Fortune 200 corporation when he was still in his 30s. Moreover, he was such a successful college football player at the University of Tampa and Louisiana State University that he was offered a contract to play for the Miami Dolphins. But 
he turned down that opportunity so he could focus on the career in business and his family. In fact, he is in the University of Tampa Hall of Fame, and as you will hear, he's someone who has achieved that success after dealing with significant challenges and adversity early in his life. All in all, his story is most remarkable. So let's welcome Armando Mondi Flores to Anchored by Truth. Mondi, would you like to say a word of greeting to the Anchored by Truth audience and maybe tell us a little more about your background? Yes, I would. And first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Anchored by Truth, who I have a lot of confidence in, and I've heard a lot of good things about, even though we don't get the broadcast here currently. A little bit about my background. I was raised in Tampa, Florida. I had a great family, older brother and a sister and a younger brother. I grew up in a specific part of Tampa referred to as West Tampa. And West Tampa is a neighborhood primarily made up of what today we call Latinos, which were basically, back in the day, immigrants of children or immigrants themselves of Italy, Spain, Cuba, and Spanish-speaking countries. It was a great time to be living in the neighborhood that uh, I lived in. There was plenty of friends and uh, youngsters to play with, and uh, we had great times. If there was a slow day there, we had a playground about a block and a half from us, so there was always things to do, and it was just a great place to grow up in. We had no air conditioning, and of course, you know, or if your listeners don't know, it gets real hot in Tampa, Florida in the summer. We had radio as a means of entertainment at home, and then we kind of graduated into TV, but the TV was not what you think of today. I mean, it was two channels that started at 6 p.m. and lasted to 8.30 or 9.30 p.m., but life was good. In Tampa, Florida, I had a great childhood. I wouldn't wish I grew up somewhere else. It was just a place that I enjoyed, and if I had to do it over again, I'd do it right there. Thank you for setting the stage for us, Mondi. Well, before we get too much further into our interview, we'd like to take a few minutes to meditate on one of the most important aspects of living victoriously, knowing that our Savior not only saves us, but also continues to make intercessions for us every day. We're going to do that by using a devotional extract from R.D. Fierro's book on prayer entitled Purposeful Prayers. This happens to be day number 10 from the 30-day devotional study. In our previous reflections, we have discussed how Christ paid the debt we owe to God by living a sinless life and dying a sacrificial death. Christ's resurrection validated that man's account had been settled and his penalty had been paid in full. This is good news for those who put their trust in him. The good news, however, does not end there. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Christ is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Thus we know that in addition to being our mediator with the Father, Christ also acts as our intercessor. Normally we think of intercessors as those who intercede on another's behalf, taking up another's cause as if it were their own. The Bible contains a wonderful account of such intercession in the brief letter of the Apostle Paul to Philemon, a believer in Colossae. Paul wrote Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave, or some commentators think servant, named Onesimus, who had become a Christian through Paul's ministry. 
Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, asking that he receive Onesimus back as a Christian brother rather than as a slave. The letter is a masterpiece of persuasion, stopping short of a demand, but containing no small hint that Philemon owed Paul a great deal and ought not to lightly refuse his request. Paul acted as Philemon's intercessor, and in doing so behaved in the same manner as other human intercessors. Human intercessors generally interpose themselves as requestors rather than as decision makers. This is certainly the situation when we undertake intercessory prayer on behalf of another, for God owes us nothing. Intercessory prayer is commendable and commanded by the Bible. It is important, however, that we not impute our limitations as intercessors to Christ in His intercessory role on our behalf. While it is true that Christ was fully human, He is also fully divine. No less so than the Father or the Holy Spirit, Christ participates in all the attributes of divinity. Christ is infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, and sovereign. When He acts, Christ does not leave His divine nature behind or forego any of His divine prerogatives. When Christ acts as our intercessor, He is not limited to merely adding His voice to ours as a petitioner. While man has the power to propose, Christ has the power to dispose. Therefore, when the Bible tells us that Christ is our intercessor, this is an observation that goes well beyond merely reporting that Christ is an additional supplicant on our behalf. The Bible teaches us that Christ is actively working on behalf of His people. When Christ lived as a man and walked among the people of Palestine, He did not just instruct them about the things of God. He fed people, healed their sicknesses, raised the dead, drove out demons, comforted children, and attended to the needs of those around him. As a final demonstration of his great love for mankind, Christ took our place on the cross and became the object of God's righteous wrath. Christ's love and his concern for his people should cause us to praise him effusively in all our prayers. And the fact that he continues to actively work on our behalf should be a source of comfort and encouragement to every believer. Understanding that Christ is our intercessor as well as our mediator is important because it illuminates our understanding of His character, roles, and relationship with His people. Our prayer life is deepened as we grow in the knowledge and understanding of the One to whom we pray. Knowing that Christ is our intercessor expands our knowledge about Him, increases our appreciation of Him, and should animate us to spend more time with Him in prayer. Well, I think meditating on the fact that Jesus not only saves us, but actively continues to intervene with the Father on our behalf and on behalf of our friends and loved ones sets the stage pretty well for today's discussion. Mondi, despite your success in your life, it didn't come without challenges and significant ones at that. I believe you told me you lost your father at a very early age. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that is true. I was six years old, and a shock hit our family when my dad was, let's just call it what it was, he was murdered. And as a six-year-old, that puts you in a kind of a tailspin because, you know, you haven't developed any skills in how to deal with trauma. And prior to that, I don't recall any trauma in our family. So not only 
I didn't have the skills to do it, but I didn't have the opportunity to deal with it. So it was a tremendous blow to our family, as you might imagine, not only financially, thank God we had our home paid for at the time, but it just emotionally rocked us. He was just a big, big part of our family. He was well-liked in the community, all that sort of thing. And then when we lost him, it was just uh, up to my mother, who did a great job, by the way, to raise us without a dad. That, as you might imagine, is pretty tough to deal with. I don't think I really understood the repercussions of that incident in my life until probably the last 10 years of what it really did to me as a youngster and how I dealt with it. Some ways pretty good, in some ways not so good. Sometimes in situations where a boy loses their father early, there are other male figures, perhaps an uncle, older brother, teacher, or someone in the neighborhood who can step up and fill the void. Did that happen in your case? No, it was pretty much having to cope with life on my own. I had a couple of uncles and other male figures that were friends of the family and what have you, but I didn't really look to any of those as a person that I wanted to be like, which I did for my dad. Later on, or fast forward to when I met my girlfriend, who ultimately ended up being my wife, thanks be to God, then her father played a real important role in my life. I was 16 when I met her, so it was 10 years after this incident, but he was the type of man, he was a sold-out Christian, and I had never met anybody like him. The people that were males in the family and friends of the people that I grew up with, I never saw one of them hold a Bible. I don't think any of them owned a Bible, and I don't think they knew what was inside of it. And by the way, I followed right along that path until I went to high school. I went to a parochial high school and for a while parochial elementary school, but I saw, you know, people reading the Bible, but they never shared the Bible with us. So I would say that the only male figure that I had in my life that I counted on was Judy's dad. Now, it sounds like you did not grow up in a family where faith in Christ were emphasized. Is that a fair statement? Well, you know, that's a funny way to put it. I grew up in a parochial elementary school, as I mentioned, and also in a parochial high school. And so we did all the things that you do. You say prayers in the morning and you have mass every so often. And, you know, we had a catechism class or, or a religion class. But it was always about really the religion, not about Christ. Did we know who Christ was, and did we believe in the virgin birth, and did we believe in the Trinity and all that? Absolutely. But it was kind of like we were studying about Abe Lincoln or George Washington, but not about somebody that was going to reconstruct your life if you allowed him to do it. I believe that you've often said that there was a particular Bible story that was instrumental in your coming to know Christ as your Savior. Could you tell us how old you were when you had your conversion experience and give us a few more details about which story in the Bible was so important to you and what role it played in your accepting Christ? I'll be happy to do so. Uh, So you're right. I was 35 years old when I had my conversion. And prior to that, I considered myself a Christian. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I talked about getting married, she'd always ask me, "Are are you believing Christ? And I said, well, absolutely, I believe in Christ. I said, who doesn't? But the fact of the matter is, I didn't believe in Christ the way she was asking the questions. And I believed in him, like I said, like George Washington or or Abe Lincoln. I believe he was, you know, a factor in my life, but not the person who would take my life and construct it the way he wanted to. 
So the conversion factor was brought about with the Pharisee and the publican, which is in several of the Gospels, but the one I refer to as Luke, where the Pharisee is listening to the call for him to take part in the service because he was describing the heart of the Pharisee. And when he was describing the heart of the Pharisee, I was thinking of myself and I was saying, wait a minute, where is this going? Because this really sounds like me. And then he started describing the heart of the tax collector. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, I'm not like that guy. I'm clean shaven. I wear suits. That guy is begging the Lord to forgive him. I imagine he did a bunch of things that he needs forgiveness for, where I don't. And then when, you know, the punchline, of course, of that Pharisee tax collector piece is that he, being the tax collector, is the one that's justified in the eyes of the Lord and not the Pharisee. And then when I thought about that, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, wow. I said, that's me. That's, I'm the Pharisee. I've been working my buns off to be the Pharisee, and I've been chasing the wrong rabbit. It's not what the Lord considers important, but it's the heart. And my heart was not there, and then it was that evening when I accepted the Lord here in my home. So that's the way the Bible played into this, and I'm so thankful that it did. As I recall, there was a cassette tape that was yes. very instrumental in your salvation. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? What happened was, when we got married, my wife said, look, the only thing that I want I want you to agree upon is that you allow me, that would be her, to raise the children. And of course, in my thought process, I never intended to raise the children anyway. So I was like, in my mind, I was thinking, well, where did I sign? I said, well, of course I'll let you raise the children. She said, but I want to raise them in the ordinance of the Lord the way that I want to. I said, yeah, absolutely. That's all. You take it from day one and all the way through. So that's the way we went into our marriage. And then as it worked out throughout our marriage, my wife and her family were continuing to pray for me, praying for my conversion. They didn't feel I was converted. I felt I was. I told them I answered all the questions where you couldn't actually argue with what I was saying. But in my heart, I didn't realize that I wasn't a believer. And I think they smelled that I wasn't. So they kept praying for me. And as my career progressed and what have you, I decided that I didn't want to go to church because I didn't get a lot of it. I quit going when I was a freshman in college. I said, the Lord knows my heart. He knows that I don't want to be in church. So if he knows I don't want to be in church, I don't think I'm getting credit for being in church. And if I'm not getting credit for being in church, why do I want to go to church? And I stopped going when I was a freshman and didn't go again until after my conversion. But they continued to pray for me, and the fact of the matter is, she would go to church, and whenever she would hear a message of something that she think would be meaningful to me, she'd get a copy on tape and give it to me, and I looked in my trunk one day, and I saw a whole bunch of tapes in there, and I said, wow, have I listened to all of those, or maybe I missed a few, or whatever, but anyway, on this one, she asked me to listen to it with her. So I said, okay. And so that afternoon, we had guests over at our house, and one thing led to another, and it got to be 8 o'clock, and I was tired. And I asked her, I said, I really don't want to listen to that tape tonight. I said, can we listen to it tomorrow? And she said, well, yeah, we can, but you're going to come home from work. You're going to be tired also. Well, why don't we just listen to it now? And I, I said, no, let's do it tomorrow. I'd prefer to do it tomorrow. She agreed. 
next day when I got home, I realized things were a little different. The kids were already get ready to go to bed, and everything was fixed and clean and so on and so forth. And I had forgotten that we had made that arrangement to listen to the tape weather. So we ran upstairs to our bedroom, and we laid in bed, and I asked her, I said, look, I said, if you don't mind, I said, I'm going to listen to this tape. I'm going to have my hand over my eyes while I listen to this. And she said, Mondi, you'll be asleep in three minutes. She says, I wish you wouldn't do that. I said, no, no, I'll, I'll be awake. I want to listen to it. So we started the tape, and lo and behold, it was this country bumpkin sort of a preacher. And I don't mean his message was a country bumpkin, but his delivery. He was kind of a country bumpkin, and before they were, you know, bringing in the sheeps, kind of a, a songs they were singing, and so on and so forth. It was culturally way outside what I was used to, but I told her I would listen to her, and I did, and the fellow started his um, preaching by talking about the Pharisee, and he described the Pharisee as maybe a guy today that's an executive, and maybe he's got a nice home with a three-car garage, and maybe he gets tailor-made suits and has his fingernails cleaned up and everything and all those kind of things. And he thinks he's a pretty well-respected individual in the town. And as he was saying all that, I was saying, wow. I said, now, yeah, now what's wrong with what he's been saying? I said, that seems like all those things are good things. And I was thinking, you know what? He's describing me. And so as he continued with the Pharisee and the tax collector, he started to describe the tax collector, and the tax collector was unshaven and had gook in his fingernails and such, and, you know, his clothes were not, you know, quote, right. And so he was just asking the Lord to allow him to be there, and he thanked him for being there and said he was sorry for all the sins he had committed. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, he ought to be sorry for the sins he's committed. Then, of course, like I mentioned earlier, the punchline is the fact that it was he that he went justified in front of the Lord and not the Pharisee. And like I said, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I looked over to my wife and I said, you know, this is what you've been telling me for 10 years. And she says, oh, you think so? And I said, yeah, I really do. I said, I, I think this is exactly what you've been telling me. I recognize now that I don't know Christ. I know of him, but I do not know him. And I, on my own, I just got out of bed and kneeled down there by my bed, and I asked the Lord to come into my heart, and I asked him to forgive me for being so pompous and self-centered throughout my entire life, 35 years. And I just asked him to be the guiding light in my life from that day on. And he has stuck with his end of the deal, and I've stuck with my end of the deal. That's pretty amazing. At that point in your life, you were 35? Yep. And you said you met Judy, your wife, when you were 16? Is it fair then to say that she had been praying for you for 19 years before your conversion? That's exactly what it's fair to say. Yeah, we, we got married when I was 26. She prayed for me for 10 years before we got married and then nine afterwards. So that's exactly right. And like I said, her parents as well. Mondi, there may be some people listening that have been praying for their own husband or wife or maybe a cousin or friend of theirs for years and have yet to see the person come to salvation. What would you say to someone who is in that situation? I say don't give up. I said, don't give up. The timing is not ours to decide. It's the Lord's. But at the same time, it's difficult to pray for that amount of time. I mean, it's difficult to pray for months sometimes, even weeks. So uh, I would just say, don't give up. 
just don't give up. The Lord knows when it's the right time, and uh, He'll do it when it is the right time, not a moment before and not a moment after. My, my time happened to be perfect for when I was 35, and uh, that's why it happened that way. Well, Mondi, before we close out for today, I think it's important to note during your business career, you had met and been friends with a large number of very influential business, political, and sports leaders. For instance, you have a very good friend who has won the World Series both as a player and a coach. Yet a lot of those friends and people you've known not only had stellar careers, they also have been dedicated and committed believers. What observations have you made about these people that might be helpful to the Anchored by Truth audience? That's a great question. You know, the common thread through these people that are believers and also very, very successful is that they put their careers and how they earn their livings, even if they're, as some of them are rich enough where they don't have to do anything, they put all that on the back burner and they put Christ in front of everything that they do. And I think that's so key because now as we're all getting older, we don't talk about things that we used to talk about, and that is, you know, how much money we had in CDs and stocks and all that sort of thing. No, all that stuff is paling day by day. And now what we talk about is, oh, what are the things that we've done that are going to go with us when we leave this earth? And so the common denominator that these people have is that they have Christ first in their life. To the degree that they've been blessed, they recognize that that blessing uh, indeed comes from Christ. Mondi, do you have any final thoughts for the Anchored by Truth audience for today? Perhaps thoughts about things for which you're particularly grateful? Yeah, I do. I thank the Lord for all He's done in my family and in my children's family. And I just thank Him for putting me together with the wife that I have now that uh, when I met when I was 16, she came from a different background. And you know, on paper, none of this would have worked out. But the Lord doesn't operate on paper. He operates in people's hearts. I would just encourage people to keep on listening to the radio station that they're listening to now. Keep on doing that because they will continue to hear good information about how to live their lives on people that have made mistakes and have uh, recovered from the mistakes they've made and people that are doing things the way they should be doing them, but not necessarily have done them that way all their lives. So this life is a struggle and it's a much more winnable situation. And the only way that you're going to be encountered with salvation is through the love of Christ. And so I would just encourage them to keep doing that. If they're in a situation where they can get into a Bible study or something, get into that Bible study, get into a Bible teaching church, and all those things will continue to guide you the way the Lord wants you to live your life. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, we'd really like to thank Mondi Flores for being our guest on Anchored by Truth today. I think we can all be inspired by the kind of faith that his wife and her family displayed in praying for him for almost two decades before their prayers were answered and Mondi came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And while we didn't get a chance to talk much about Mondi's life after his conversion, it's a life that has yielded a bountiful harvest for the Lord and continues to yield blessings to a great many even today. Mondi's story is just one more example of how sacred scripture, the Bible, continues to demonstrate its supernatural nature through lives that are changed for the better for all eternity by its saving power. Today, for our closing prayer, how about if we pray that everyone would come to a saving knowledge of the God of the Bible, who is the one sure anchor to truth. A Prayer for the Spiritually Lost 
wondrous and perfect Father, we exalt your name and sing praises to your glory. Your word is the foundation of joy and the bedrock of hope. In you, there is blessed assurance. Without you, the shifting sands of a sin-stained shore would wash away beneath us and we would be swept into the depths by the tides of trouble. With you, we cannot be moved or thrown down, though all the waves of chaos should pound against us with fervor and anger. Lord, too many have been swept away, and we are grieved to see all about us people we know whose life foundations are crumbling. We see our neighbors being pushed to and fro by the currents of popular opinion, and whose lives are filled with fear and despair because they have no sustaining source of truth. We come before you today to plead for their rescue and redemption. We ask that you sovereignly intercede in the lives of those who are lost and sinking and turn their hearts to you. As when the citizens of Nineveh heard Jonah's preaching and repented, please touch our land and community with your word and call our neighbors to you. Give us opportunities to witness that we would miss on our own. Strengthen our hearts to stand for Christ as he stood for us. The glory is his alone, so it is in his name we pray, give thanks, and ask for the lost to be saved. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalcbooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.